<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Uh, we'll be taking your calls on whatever you would like to talk about. I just want to toss a few things in here to start the conversation, as it were. It turns out that Section 6103 of our tax code says that any official of the federal government who touches the tax system, basically, and fails to follow the law must be removed from office and faces up to five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Now, right now, that would be Steve Mnuchin and IRS Commissioner Charles Reddick. Reddick could also lose his law license. They're both facing five years in prison because they're hiding Trump's tax returns after Congress asked for them, which the law says the IRS shall provide them. And even if they turn the taxes over today, the law further says uh, the provision requiring removal from office for anyone who conspires or colludes with another person. And Mnuchin has acknowledged, this according to David K. Johnston on Lawrence O'Donnell's show, Mnuchin has acknowledged that Treasury officials talk with White House officials, and Reddick has indicated that he's spoken with Mnuchin and other Treasury. I mean, this is a conspiracy, a criminal conspiracy to break the law. Meanwhile, let me refer you back to November 13, 2017. This is a year after the presidential election. As stories were coming out in the press, Julia Yaffe writing for The Atlantic. The headline is The Secret Correspondence Between Donald Trump Jr. and WikiLeaks. She writes, just before the stroke of midnight on September 20th, 2016, this is at the height of the presidential election. This is three weeks before the election in November. The WikiLeaks Twitter account sent a private direct message to Donald Trump Jr. And it said, quote, a pack running anti-Trump site, Putin Trump Org, is about to launch. We have guessed the password. It's Putin Trump. And see the about for who's behind it. Any comments? Donald Trump Jr. responded to WikiLeaks saying, you know, I don't know, but I'll ask around. Correspondence continued between Donald Trump Jr. and WikiLeaks, presumably Assange or somebody speaking on his behalf, until July of 2017. This is a half a year after Trump was inaugurated. Back in 2016, on that same day, Trump Jr. received the first message from WikiLeaks. He emailed other senior officials within the Trump campaign, including Steve Bannon, Kellyanne Conway, Brad Pascal, Jared Kushner, telling them WikiLeaks had made contact. 
He then forwarded the email to campaign communications staffer Hope Hicks. On the first day of the DNC, WikiLeaks released emails stolen from the DNC on October 7th, less than an hour after the Access Hollywood tape was dropped. He, WikiLeaks dropped the John Podesta tapes. And then on October 3rd, they wrote to Don Jr. again. Hiya! It'd be great if you guys could comment on or push this story. It was about Hillary Clinton saying she wanted to drone WikiLeaks in an email, or it was a quote from her. Trump Jr. said, already did that earlier today. It's amazing what she can get away with. Two minutes later, Trump Jr. wrote again saying, what's behind this Wednesday leak I keep reading about? It was about Roger Stone having tweeted that, quote, Wednesday Hillary Clinton has done hashtag WikiLeaks. On October 12th, the account again messaged Trump Jr. saying, hey, Donald, great to see you and your dad talking about our publications. Strongly suggest your dad mentions this link if he tweets, if, uh, this link if he mentions us. It was wlsearch.tk. There's many great stories that are missing. By the way, we just released Podesta emails part four. 15 minutes after that came out, Donald Trump himself tweeted, very little pickup by the dishonest media of incredible information provided by WikiLeaks, so dishonest rig system, et cetera. It goes on from there. I'm not going to read all the stuff, but it's uh, one of them was suggesting that if Trump lost the election, that he should refuse to concede and just throw the entire U.S. political system into turmoil. This is pretty mind-boggling stuff. This is not what Julian Assange was arrested for. And I'm not even sure if it's illegal, but it is pretty mind-boggling that WikiLeaks was working hand-in-glove with the Trump administration to help Donald Trump become president. How does that help journalism? The guy who is president now calls journalists enemies of the people? I don't get it, but in any case, Trump is saying, hey, let's drop the asylum seekers in the sanctuary cities, right? Yeah, let's just dump them in the sanctuary cities. Brilliant idea. Apparently, you know, what this tells me, and this apparently was a scheme that Stephen Miller and Donald Trump came up with, what this tells me is that Trump may actually believe his own lies, which makes sense. I mean, the easiest way to keep repeating something is to believe it's true. So you convince yourself of the truth of your own lies is apparently what Trump is doing. He actually believes that among the, the asylum seekers, there are murderers and rapists and killers and gang members and, and uh, ISIS members and all these other things that he has said in the past. I mean, the simple reality is that the more immigrants there are in a community, the lower the crime rate is. I mean, we just know that it's a statistical reality. So if he were to dump a lot of asylum seekers into San Francisco, which was his suggestion, where Nancy Pelosi, you know, the district that Nancy Pelosi represents in Congress, the crime rate would go down. But apparently nobody told Trump and, and uh, Stephen Miller that. Or when they did tell them, they decided, oh, well, not, not such a good idea. I guess we better not do that. So, you know, let's pick up your calls and see what you have to say about these things. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind? Hey, uh, Professor, I don't know if I should sing Happy Days Are Here Again or The Party Is Over. Because Mr. Trump, he's going down, my friend, with respect to his taxes. I saw that same program. The, the law is very, very clear. Unless this guy is just going to be adamantly defiant of American law, He's busted straight up. Yeah. Well, the, the problem is that the enforcer of American law, the ultimate enforcer of American law right now is Bill Barr. And Bill Barr has signaled to the world that he's just Mr. Trump's toady, period, full stop. Uh, Professor, do you think Steve Mnuchin, uh, Mnuchin I hope I'm saying his name yeah, correctly, is going to risk going to jail for this fool? 
Well, that's the question. And we'll probably know the answer to that sometime next week. But, uh, you know, it's it's in order to enforce the law, Bill Barr would have to initiate that process, I believe. Oh, I know what you're saying. You're talking about enforcement. What I was about to yeah, say. Yeah, all the federal attorneys work for him. Every single federal attorney in the United States works for Bill Barr. The 100 ones in all the various states, plus, you know, the federal law enforcement, like the FBI. I mean, they all, they literally all report to Bill Barr. And so, you know, I think the fix is in, at least until after the election. And, you know, and then after the election, if Trump refuses to concede, as WikiLeaks had recommended to him back uh, on election day of 2016, if he lost, refused to concede, it's going to be a real mess. I mean, this is the all the Democrats running for president. You have their picket signs, be in front of the White House saying, I paid my taxes. I've showed my taxes. Show yours. Forget the Mueller report. Stick on the tax issue. Because that's what put Al Capone in jail. That's what's going to take him out the White House. Well, it may well be. It may well be. But I'm Morris, I'm getting very, very wary of, of praying for silver bullets. I think there's already enough out there to put to, to get him out of the White House. I mean, you know, obviously it's criminal collusion, you know, to, on the Stormy Daniels thing uh, to violate campaign finance laws and steal an election. This is the Tom Hartman program. Our book today is uh, by Vicki Ward. It's titled Kushner, Inc. Greed, Ambition, Corruption. Uh, this is from Chapter 2. It's about Jared Kushner's childhood and his father, Charlie. As Jared Kushner grew into his teens, attending the Frisch School, a co-ed modern Orthodox yeshiva in Paramus, New Jersey, where he was an average student, ranked in the third track of five in his grade, his father aggressively built an empire for his firstborn to inherit. It was a pedestrian colossus, tens of thousands of so-called garden apartments, multifamily buildings surrounded by landscaping, mostly in New Jersey, but the income from them was enough to turn Charlie Kushner into someone whose money and approval were sought by local politicians. He was now a New Jersey power broker. The logic behind Charlie's largesse was fairly simple, according to a Kushner family member. Quote, Charlie had a messianic complex. It was his father who delivered us from Poland, and Charlie was going to deliver us to Manhattan. He's going to get us out of New Jersey and onto the Forbes 500 list. But to do that, you got to buy Governor Jim McGreevy, end quote. In November 2001, McGreevy had won the gubernatorial election with a friendly push from Charlie and his pals. Charlie was now an autocrat whose reign sometimes felt like a noose to his relatives, friends, employees, and even fellow synagogue members who came to be in his debt. His role as a family patriarch meant his relatives were not to question his aggressive methods of social advancement. He was nicknamed the, Dop the Dapper Don, or Don Corleone, partly because of his natty suits and perfectly quaffed hair. But the nickname was also appropriate, some felt, given Charlie's godfather-like approach to running both his business and his personal life. Business was life. Life was business. Take Marcy Plotkin, for example, the accountant Charlie had fired for having an affair with his brother-in-law. Even though she was now at the accounting firm of SSMB, Kushner companies still paid her annual bonuses of between fifteen dollars and $25,000 and reimbursed Plotkin for the cost of her son's private school tuition, which was disguised to the IRS as a legal expense. Charlie wasn't just being nice. He needed her cooperation. Beginning in the mid-1990s, at Charlie's direction, according to legal records, the company had begun to commit financial fraud to fund his growing social, political, and financial ambitions. As is common in real estate firms, each of the entities Charlie owned had its own LLC, or was its own LLC, and each LLC was owned by a partnership, a combination of Charlie and some backers. All of the LLCs passed down by Joe Kushner were, per the instructions of his will, equally divided among Charlie and his three siblings and the respective children's trusts. 
But Charlie set up a management company, Westminster Management, and made himself the manager of all the buildings. Initially, his siblings all thought this was a good idea. Charlie viewed his increasingly public profile as a public service, but his lust for the limelight brought some large bills. He invited politicians to speak, often for a large fee and an assortment of venues, ranging from his office to his home, off-site conferences, and his synagogue. He even invited the entire New Jersey political leadership to attend Kushner's baby's bris. A speech by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, for example, cost as much as $100,000, and Charlie paid him to speak in New Jersey four times. Rather than pay out of his own pocket for his many political and charitable contributions, Charlie, or senior executives in the firm at Charlie's direction, took LLC money without pre-approval from the partners in the LLC to cover these costs. None of the Kushner Company's partners were informed of how their money was being spent. Not Charlie's business partners, his friends, or even his siblings, children, nieces, and nephews. Nor did they know that neither the internal nor external ledger presented the true numbers for each of the LLCs. If Charlie was short on cash on one project, he borrowed from the bank account of another. That wasn't the only fudging that went on. According to court documents, there was euphemistic language used at the Tuesday weekly meetings, also called cash meetings, held at Charlie's home early in the morning. The phrase losing a bill, as in, how do we lose this bill, meant finding a way to turn an expense from one project into a capital deduction somewhere else. Personal expenses were also lost and submitted as capital business expenses from whichever LLC Richard Stradmeyer and, and an executive vice president Scott Zecker picked. Those ranged from Charlie's home improvements to vacations, New Jersey Nets tickets, Super Bowl packages, even the alcoholic Charlie and Cheryl Kushner bought for holiday celebrations. A, a contribution from Charlie to Harvard University to smooth the way for Jared's admission was funded by the company, not Charlie. The check was signed by Zecker, and that was no accident. Charlie never signed anything. His corner office in Florham Park was enormous but spartan. It was 40 feet long and had a private shower and sitting area. He also had a vast outdoor terrace on which he built a sukkah, a temporary outdoor hut under the roof of which he and his family would celebrate the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. His desk, however, had nothing on it. No pens, no paper, no computer. Most critical of all to the apparent health of the company's balance sheet was what was called a Richard Special, named after Richard Statmauer, Charlie's brother-in-law and vice chairman of the Kushner companies, which was essentially bank fraud. If Charlie wanted to do an acquisition or do a refinancing that required a line of credit, Statmauer, a chartered accountant and Mensa member, would direct a subordinate to alter the figures so that the banks would be tricked into believing Kushner Company's finances met preconditions of their covenants. As a result, the firm would receive lines of credit and tax deductions it should not have been entitled to. Most of the senior members of Kushner's companies knew what was going on. The book by Vicki Ward, Kushner Inc., Greed, Ambition, Corruption. Hey, thanks so much for listening to our podcast. One of our sponsors is the X Chair. And I got to tell you, they've got this new thing, Dynamic Variable Lumbar Support. They're called DVL. The X Chair's DVL is really designed to adjust for you. I mean, you know, the average chair, maybe it goes up and down, right? This thing really is totally customizable. Whether you're 5'2 and 110 pounds or 6'4 and 250, the X Chair actually will adapt itself to you. And now with the introduction of the X Basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of the X chair's new financing option to pay as little as 30 bucks a month. So take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. 
And X-Chair is also on sale now for $100 off. So just go to X-Chair Tom, T-H-O-M, xchairtom.com, X-Chair Tom, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. Comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. And if you use the code XWheels over at xchairtom.com now, you'll also receive a free set of the new XWheels with your chair. That's xchairtom, T-H-O-M, xchairtom.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Online with us right now is Vicki Ward, the editor-at-large of the Huffington Post, author of the new book, Kushner, Inc., Greed, Ambition, Corruption, which is one of our book reports for the day. And VickiWard.com is her website. You can tweet her at Vicki P.J. Ward. And Vicki, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure having you. I, I, I love the book. Now I've got a copy of the book. We talked last week, and I didn't have a copy of the book at the time. And uh, it's just a breathtaking story. I mean, just I, in, in fact, I, I haven't read the entire book, but the part that I have read, um, you kind of mentioned in passing that, that uh, Kushner's daddy made a huge donation to Harvard to get him into college. Um, and, and of course, we know his father you know, went down in flames. He was convicted of all kinds of financial crimes. To what extent has Jared followed in his father's footsteps as essentially a grifter, a hustler, and a criminal? Oh, my goodness. That is the question. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in some ways, this book is really all about fathers' relationships with their adult children. And, you know, I think really one of the main themes here is how Charlie Kushner still really controls Jared. Charlie Kushner being his father. Yes, so that everything Jared Kushner does, even from inside the White House and certainly when it comes to foreign policy, is all really steered by his father and by his father's financial needs. You have to remember, so if you go back in time, that Charlie Kushner always raised Jared to be the heir and that Charlie Kushner had these extraordinary ambitions. He wanted the Kushners to be the Jewish Kennedys. You know, he made a lot of money very quickly in the real estate business in New Jersey, but then he spent that money on courting politicians. He clearly wanted a much grander, more powerful platform, but he started to cut corners because he does have this belief that rules really are for other people. And you have to remember that his own parents had had a horrific experience in the Holocaust. And there is, you know, you can understand that if they had been done what they'd been told to do back in Poland, they'd be dead. So there is a mentality that rules are dangerous. And Charlie Kushner certainly believed, I spoke to one of the Kushner family members, he wasn't going to sit around and wait and see if Jared got into Harvard by himself. He was going to make sure that check got written. And in fact, I point out in the book, it actually, one of the checks for a million dollars wasn't even from him. It was from the Kushner companies. Um, but, you know, this mentality rules are for other people, which is why he then steals effectively from his siblings to pay for all these politicians, including Bibi Netanyahu, to come give speeches 
in his hometown in New Jersey. And this is then what gets him sparks for all the trouble that he then gets into because the Fed, then led by Chris Christie, then the U.S. attorney in New, uh, in New Jersey, get wind of what had started out as a civil family dispute. His brother sort of sued him for basically stealing from him. The whole thing blows up, and, and Charlie, um, once he realizes the feds and Christie know things about his private life that he really wishes they didn't, and that Christie is threatening to air in a public courtroom, that is when Charlie snaps and basically hires a prostitute and sets up his own brother-in-law in a sting. He films the encounter with a prostitute and sends it to his sister. Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons also that he has to plead guilty because he couldn't stand in front of a jury after that and tell them what a good person hmm. he was. But what's so fascinating is the impact on Jared. Jared doesn't think that what happened to his father is the sort of right and natural consequences of breaking the law. Jared thinks that Chris Christie had no business getting involved in what was essentially a family dispute. And that is why many years later, Jared took very little time in firing Chris Christie from the transition and ripping up all the work that had been done on the transition. You know, Jared's mentality is all about after that, how do I avenge my father? How do I rehabilitate the family name? And he follows Charlie's instructions. Charlie masterminds everything that Jared does, even from jail. Charlie comes up. He's advised by a New York public relations guru, a three-point plan, set up in New Jersey, buy a trophy building in New York. So that's point one. Point two is have Jared buy a media outlet, not just so he can control the media, but so that it puts him into the right social networking group. And third, have Jared date someone prominent. And all of these things have come about, but really it's Charlie pushing all the buttons. When they buy 666 Fifth Avenue with 97% leverage right before the financial crash, nobody thought it was Jared who was straight out of law school who was really doing any of this. It was all... Charlie, and when the building then had to go through a restructuring, sort of in 2011, you know, Charlie was technically not allowed to have anything to do. It was a condition of the lenders because he'd gone to jail. He was not allowed to have any involvement in the day-to-day -day running of this building. So Jared would show up and tell the room during this restructuring that he was putting his lawyer on speakerphone. Well, everyone in the room, none of them had brought their lawyers. They knew exactly what was really going on. It was Charlie being put on speakerphone. Mm. And it was Charlie who was, who was calling the shots. And Jared, you know, as he got older, would say to people, well, you really want to do what I say, because if you don't, you're going to have to answer to my father. And he's a lot less pleasant to deal with. They wow. would use... They would use each other. So you have to remember the close-knit nature of the relationship, the pressure on Jared to rehabilitate Charlie Kushner. 
and that his father is facing this ticking time bomb financially as Jared goes into the White House. Right. I'm curious to what extent this convicted felon and grifter, Charlie Kushner, Jared's dad, is influencing policy in the current White House. To what extent is Charlie driving what Donald Trump is doing? Well, look, as I say in the book, it was Charlie who asked for a billion dollars in the spring of 2017 from the Qatars, this very rich kingdom in the Middle East, who are rivals of Saudi Arabia. Right after that, Jared, make no mistake, we would never have made, the, the first U.S. official visit abroad would never have been to Saudi Arabia if Jared had not pushed it. Right. In we fact, should note, by the yeah. way, Qatar is also where, isn't that where the, what is the fifth or sixth fleet? It's like one of our major naval bases. Major, it, major air base. Or air base, okay, security. thank you. And um, so 10 days after the summit, Rex Tillerson and James Mattis are actually horrified to discover the summit was supposed to be all about cooperation in the Gulf. So 10 days after, the Saudis then lead a blockade of Qatar because they want to overthrow the rulers there and get their, and it's all about money. They want their money. And Rex Tillerson and James Mattis knew they didn't know, obviously, that Charles Kushner at that moment had asked the Qataris for a billion dollars and been turned down. But they did know that the only person in the White House who would have greenlit a blockade of a country where there is an American air base would have been Jared Kushner. Hmm. And that's when it all became extremely dangerous. And fast forward nine months, the U.S. withdraws its support for the blockade at a, within a two-week period of basically... A, a Canadian company whose largest outside shareholder is the Qatar government bailing out the Kushners. And Congress is quite rightly all over this right now, as are other prosecutors. And they should be, because this is going to be the story of the 2020 election. That's extraordinary that U.S. foreign policy with an ally, you know, trashing an ally is being done in order to raise a billion dollars for Jared Kushner to save this building that he stupidly bought. And Charlie Kushner, amazing. Vicki Ward is the author of the new book, Kushner, Inc., Greed, Ambition, Corruption. Vicki, thank you for dropping by. Thank you for having me, Tom. Always a pleasure. It's a brilliant book you've written. Thank you so much. You're listening to Tom Hartman. That's absolutely shocking, you know, the stuff that Vicki Ward is sharing, her book, Kushner, Inc., particularly the fact that U.S. foreign policy, our behavior toward Qatar, you know, one of our major allies in the Middle East. And we supported a blockade of them for six or eight months because they wouldn't loan a billion dollars to Charlie Kushner, Jared Kushner's daddy, to bail out his 666 Fifth Avenue building, which Jared bought because his father said, okay, here's how you rehabilitate the family name. Marry a famous woman, and he did. He hooked up with Ivanka Trump. Buy a premier New York real estate building, and he did. And buy a media outlet, which he did. He bought the, the uh, New York Examiner, I believe it's called. He bought a newspaper in New York. And boom, you know, this is Jared rehabilitating the family name, but it's all true. That's just a mind-boggling story. I got a call from a woman who was talking about how her husband had been listening to right-wing radio and was becoming essentially a Trump supporter and how it was damaging their marriage. There is a newsletter, Welcome to Hell World, where the author has compiled all these stories 
of people who have seen their family members basically destroyed by Fox News. He writes that no matter where the stories came from, they all featured a few familiar beats. A loved one seemed to have changed over time. Maybe the person was already somewhat conservative to start. Maybe they were apolitical. But at one point or another, they sat down in front of Fox News, found some kind of deep, addictive comfort in the anger and paranoia, and became a different person, someone difficult, if not impossible, to spend time with. That fallout has led to failed marriages and estranged parental relationships. For at least one person, he writes, it marks the final memory he'll ever have of his father. He says, when I found my dad dead in his armchair, Fox News was on the TV, this reader told me. It's like the last thing he saw. I hate what that channel and conservative talk radio did to my funny, compassionate dad. He spent the last years of his life increasingly angry, bigoted, and paranoid. Have you seen people in your life, in your family, change as a result of exposure to right-wing media? I mean, beyond just their political beliefs, but actually change their core personality. The reason why I think this is happening, and I've certainly seen it happen with people, the reason why I think this is happening is because we all have a little bit of authoritarianism in us, right? The, the desire to follow a strong leader, the desire to have some father figure who's going to protect us from the big dangerous world out there, some, you know, this daddy figure. And, and we're all capable of outrage. And the main currency, the coin of the realm that the right wing is using is outrage. It's, it's, you know, it's fear, it's anger, it's upset. And they're using this outrage to crank people into this fight or flight response. And then they feed them, you know, bits and pieces of, of sometimes facts, sometimes not facts, sometimes facts out of context to give them a coherent worldview of, oh my God, you know, the entire world is out to get us. I am convinced this is an extraordinarily destructive thing. Have you had people in your life go through this as well? And have you had a successful resolution of it? Have you figured out a way to bring people back from the edge, from the Fox News edge, from the right-wing hate radio edge? It's an extraordinary issue. And frankly, I think one that is becoming more and more of a concern for families all across the United States. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I think you could call it the poisoning of the American mind. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold I was referring here to an article by Luke O'Neill in the uh, New York Magazine, nymag.com, in the Intelligencer section. It's titled, What I've Learned from Collecting Stories of People Whose Loved Ones Were Transformed by Fox News. He writes, many Americans blame Fox News for changes in their loved ones, 
uh, say that the friends and family members have been lost to a 24-7 stream of right-wing propaganda. Dozens responded to my piece talking about the sad, lonely twilight of their parents' or grandparents' lives having disowned much of their families over political disagreements. Young parents write that they don't want to bring their children to visit aging Fox brainers. I've heard from several people that Fox News is a key factor in a divorce. Uh, they, they call this Fox addiction. And another person told me that Rush Limbaugh sent his father on the path to isolation before eventually mainlining Fox News on a regular basis. Uh, out of the blue, his mother filed for divorce. Uh, and, you know, it just goes on and on and on. So I was just asking, uh, do you have stories like this in your in your world? Ellen, in Croset, Virginia. Am I saying that right, Ellen? Crozet. Crozet. Okay, what's up? Crozet. Well, you know, I, I'm a reporter here in Charlottesville, and I have a friend, and she ended a relationship. She was my boss as a teenager in a family business, um, church youth leader. Uh, and then we became, a, I became an adult, and we were friends like sisters for more than three decades. I'm going to give an, a conservative estimate of 35. It may have been more. And she met someone online, and through that relationship, which was not great, uh, she got turned on to Fox. Now, I knew she was a Republican, but she wasn't adamant about anything. We never talked anything about politics. Mm-hmm. But then she met him, and she started to spout everything that you would expect and there started to be some tensions when we would speak. For example, she came to visit. I learned a neighbor, uh, a couple was going to, to teach abroad, and they'd mentioned it, but they didn't say anything about through whom, and it was through a faith organization. I said, oh, that's wonderful. I'm a big fan of Mennonite Central Committee, and I'm trying not to get emotional. And, you know, she said out of nowhere, I'm not liberal like her. And I'm like, I didn't even say anything about liberal. I just said that I like the organization because it's not evangelical. They serve they don't preach their faith, but they serve because of it. And all of a sudden, she's distancing herself from me, things like that. Over time, I say nothing. I've got a big mouth, but I held my tongue. Until, well, one day out of nowhere, she wanted to tell me that what, how she felt about homosexuality, and she went on and on on a rampage for about five minutes, and I'm like, this is not the person I knew. Wow. But I didn't say anything. Then we had a conversation post-August 12th, and it was the day that he went off the script, and it turned into a debacle. He being who? Trump? uh, He being Trump, excuse Uh me, yes. He spoke on the day of, and then he spoke a few days after, and it was the morning of the fateful second day where he went off script, where I noticed that she hadn't been, no, excuse me, later she ended the friendship, but on that day, a few days after August 12th, I said to her, you know what, this town is furious at the president. If he came in this town, I don't know if he'd come out alive because they were so angry. Oh, this was the Charlottesville event, the the very fine people event that you're talking about. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're great. They're great on both sides. And I know how angry they were because I'd covered the accident where Heather Heyer was killed. They hadn't taken all the people away yet. Then they rerouted us because it was a crime scene. We went into, I was with my intern, we went into a craft brewery where people were gathered watching CNN talking about Charlottesville, they're waiting to hear the president and what he has to say. And when he came out and said what he had to say, the crowd went wild. They would have chewed him to the bone if he had been in that room and said that. And I commented, I might have been more emotional than I would be during the newscast, but I told an objectable truth that Charlottesville hated the way the president had dealt with that. I have to go now. And then after a month or two, 
She wasn't answering my calls. She wouldn't answer my texts. We were friends about three hours away. My hometown, I'm up here. And long short, she broke up with me over the uh, by, by way of text. Mm-hmm. She ended a 35-plus-year relationship. As soon as she started to watch Fox regularly, things started to change. And yeah. I just, I've just disagreed with her on many things, and I just let it go because I loved her. Mm-hmm. And um, it just it changed her. It's, it changed her. It is so sad. I have an old friend who used to work with Ted Patrick, who was the famous cult programmer back in the 60s and 70s, where they would literally kidnap kids back from the Moonies and deprogram them and restore them, return them to their families. And I see, and, 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 and Hilly really helped me understand the, you know, the, the cult aspect of, of this. And I am, I, I, I swear, Ellen, I am, I, you know, when I talk to, to, to regular Fox News viewers, it, it is just like talking to cult members back in the 60s and 70s. They literally live in an alternative, alternative universe. Ellen, I got to move well, along. We can with... do no wrong. Yeah. But I think what upset her is that she hated him before the nomination. She hated him. I think she's angry that he was elected, and she's just doesn't want to admit oh, I'm guessing there's all there's all kinds of, of uh, dissonance going on inside her head. Ellen, thank you for the call yeah. and thanks for sharing your story with us. That's extraordinary. Pam in Milford, Maine, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Pam, what's up? You have a story to tell? I'm uh, very interested in these stories. I'm hearing a little while back. I did see um, on probably Free Speech TV uh, a little short. Uh, of the example of the father, the old man had been watching um, Fox News and turned his whole personality around. But my brother, you know, I think this stuff all started with a tea party. um, Because my brother kind of became too nasty for him. He he wasn't a nasty kind of person. And um, his wife uh, recorded all the Glenn Beck shows back when he was uh, flying high, and mm-hmm. I watched a couple of those Glenn Beck shows, and he was scary. Mm-hmm. His stuff scared. He was scary. I think he was inciting violence. You know, I mean. Oh, there was a uh, guy who who was uh, going up to assassinate the people at the Tides Foundation. He was a Glenn Beck follower, and the state police in California stopped him, and he put something like a hundred bullets in their cars before they oh, were able to stop this guy. Oh my gosh! Oh, it's terrible. Uh, <laughs> So um, the connection with the Tea Party is important because I think now it's called the Freedom Caucus, right? Right. The Tea Party was funded by the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers also fund the members of the Freedom Caucus. And, of course, they've got their organization called Freedom Works. Yeah. I was just going to say it was a sad state of affairs. Yeah. Yeah, it truly is. It really and truly is. Pam, thank you for sharing your story with us. It's great to hear from you. Tim in Beaverton, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's up? Yeah, Tom, you know, it just, it just hit me at home because I, I experienced the last couple of days. I've got a neighbor across the street, and she's very religious, and she's a Republican, and she prays a lot, she says. And she's moving to Texas, and she, <laughs> she's an avid Fox News watcher. And I said, so the, the godless gays are taking the guns, and, and she just she smiled. You see what I mean? Yeah. That's the kind of mentality that's permeating a lot of this country, this scary stuff. Yeah. You know, I've got friends and family all across the country, and some of my neighbors have friends like in North and South Dakota. Those people are on a different planet. Do you know of any successful stories, Tim, of deprogramming? No, you know, and that, and it's really, really kind of ironic because it's so, it so permeates society. The media, that's how they make money. You make money on bad news, you know, and it's all mm-hmm. about uh, 
demographics and market share, even with the progressive uh, of, uh, TV stations, they know the worse news they can report, the more money they're going to make. And it's a scary situation. Yeah. A lot of people, and I, uh, and I'm, I have a, a good education, and a lot of my friends are teachers, and it's there's no perspective on history anymore. You know, yesterday is gone and tomorrow isn't here, and it's a scary thought, you know? Yeah. And you can just go, go back to the turn of the century when McKinley was assassinated and, and look what happened in that first 20 years of the 20th century. We're, we're going back to the, the Mellons and the Rockefellers, basically, is what we're doing, you know? Yeah, we, abso we absolutely are. And, and, and I think as a consequence of this, and a consequence of the, this business model you're talking about, we are sadly misinformed. I mean, you spend 10 minutes with BBC, and suddenly you realize there's other things going on in the world that are very consequential. Tim, thank you for the call, and thanks for sharing your story. Curtis in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Curtis, what happened in your family? Yeah, so I'm have a, a little different take on it. My brother, you know, I'm a black guy, obviously, and uh, my brother got uh, kind of brainwashed, I would say, by the whole box thing in connection with his job. He worked for Comcast, and I believe, I'm almost sure of it, he, ne he would never admit it to me, but during the campaign, Comcast had the employees thinking that Trump was going to be good for their, their bottom line, and obviously their 401k was going to go up. And I couldn't get him, no matter what, I couldn't get him to reason that, you know, Trump was going to be bad for the country. Right. He, was so, he was so stuck on this Les Moonves thing. Yeah, he might be bad for the country, but he's going to be good for my 401k. And right. I really believe that's some of what it's all about. Wow. Like right now, right now we, we, you know, we, we stopped talking right after Trump got elected. And the last conversation we had about it, he said, well, Trump is an idiot. He, he's his own worst enemy. And we just don't even talk about it. But I really think what's going on is the media has run a con game on American people uh, using greed. It's the old pigeon drop concept, the old pigeon drop con where that offers you a pile of money if you put your money with his money. Right. And the media, the media is this third person that's telling everybody, yeah, go with Trump. Go with Trump. Put your money in the envelope with Trump because he's going to, He's going to put you on top. And like the people who fall for that con, they believe that Trump really is going to do it. And until they realize they've been conned, like all these people that lose all their life savings, they, it's almost like they can't help themselves. They don't pitch up to his wagon, and they can't go back on him now because everybody they know, they've all fallen for the con. So it's like, yeah. you know, everybody's jumping on the same bandwagon. That's amazing. I love that metaphor, the pigeon drop, um, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's it's where uh, you know the con artist comes to the comes to the mark and and says, you know, I've got a thousand dollars. Well, you know, I, I don't need to go through the whole thing. People can look it up, but I think you're absolutely right, Curtis. I, I think that that's exactly what's going on. Thank you for sharing your story with us too, and good luck with your brother, Thomas, in Spanish Fort, Alabama. Hey, Thomas, what's up? Hey, Tom. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in Alabama on the uh, Alabama-Georgia border, and my parents are very progressive. Um, we were big supporters of Albert Brewer, who tried to uh, take the governorship from um, George Wallace. My parents were for integration. My dad passed away, you know, when I was younger, but my mom, of course, started watching Fox News, and it's just, it was just amazing to see the change that that brought to her you know it was just like and it was really depressing because to know that how she was and then literally from watching fox news she was literally brainwashed literally wow wow yeah and so so where are you at with her now thomas uh, she she passed away about uh six years ago uh, -huh. uh but but you know she it was just like i said it was just amazing to see someone who 
was such an influence on me, um, and you know, I'm getting emotional, but you know, made me a progressive to see that. I mean, it was. I'm telling you, man, it, it's tough because it's mm. literally like you're you're watching your parents get brainwashed. Yeah. I mean, it, and so it's true. I'm telling you, it it is so true that they literally brainwash people. And it's just, it, it's, it breaks your heart. To it's, it. a, it's a cult. I've been saying this for a long time. It is a cult. Fox News, uh, Rupert Murdoch, and Rupert Murdoch did this in Australia. Then he did it in the United Kingdom. Kevin Rudd wrote a brilliant piece, uh, the former prime minister of Australia, called The Cancer. If Rupert Murdoch is the cancer in Australian democracy. Uh, you can find it online. It's published by the Sydney Morning Herald. And, uh, and he's running a cult here in the United States with Fox so-called news. And uh, I'm so sorry to hear about your mother, Thomas. Thomas, thanks for sharing your story with us. That, that's extraordinary. Chip in Lawrence, Kansas. Hey, Chip, what's up? Hi, thanks for taking my call, Tom. Um, I want the flip side. I had a little old lady move in to my apartment complex. Her daughter just dropped her in here and was not really connected to her mom. I would see her once a, once a week or so. And I ended up starting to take care of this lady. She had nobody, nothing. And she was very much a conservative. She was raised, well, she lived for all her adult life in uh, fascist Spain, where her husband was from. Mm -hmm. And she was all Fox News, Fox News, Fox News. She wanted to listen to talk radio at night in her bedroom while she was laying down. So she had me, I set up iHeartRadio on her computer and ran speaker into her bedroom. And I said, well, I'll set up whatever station. She, what do you listen to? So, well, mine's kind of progressive. I put on a station that plays all progressive radio shows all night, including yours. Mm -hmm. It actually would run through yours twice during the night. And she started becoming more informed, more pleasant. And she went from watching Fox to, oh, I got to check out MSNBC. I heard it's a little bit more progressive. Huh. And she, at least it was President Fox, and she totally opened her eyes to what have I been doing for all these years? Wow, so and we deprogrammed was, her. Yeah, I did, and it was she became such a pleasant little thing, and I basically took care of her for almost two years, and she passed away right before Christmas. That's remarkable. But That's a, a remarkable story, Chip. You know, there is a way to deprogram folks. Go for it. Get yeah, there you go. Tell them, tell them about you know free speech TV or progressive radio or yep, whatever the exactly. local. Your, if you have a local progressive station, or, and you, and you can always find it on the internet. You're absolutely right, Chip. Thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. You know, Louise and I just got back from Mexico, and uh, we took a week's vacation uh, with my brother and his family, but it was also a week that I could finish up writing this, this book on voting that I've been working on. And while we were there, uh, my brother-in-law, or my brother and sister-in-law rented a house that we all shared, and it, it, it had, you know, a, a Wi-Fi that was kind of public Wi-Fi. And, uh, you know, going to town, there's public Wi-Fi. At the airport, there's public Wi-Fi. Pretty much everywhere I was, I didn't know, you know, whether it was secure or not, but I was not concerned because Louise and I both use ExpressVPN. I have it on my iPhone. I have it on my computer. I, she, Louise has it on her laptop. I have it on my laptop. Uh, she has it on her iPad. Uh, ExpressVPN, it's one click. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing. In fact, when we were in Mexico, 
uh, if it, you know, it, it would have looked to any website pretty much like we were in the United States because the ExpressVPN uh, apparently was just dropping our data and you know encrypted from where we were in Mexico right into the United States, you know, into a main pipeline and uh, completely safe, completely secure. Uh, with Ex ExpressVPN, I can surf any Wi-Fi without worrying about my personal data being stolen, and it's less than seven bucks a month. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same protection that Louise and I have. And ExpressVPN has been rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. You can protect your online activity now and get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. This is a product. I love endorsing this product. I actually use it. ExpressVPN is something you should have. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, to learn more. And thanks for supporting our program. Amy in Reno, Nevada. Hey, Amy, you have a story? Hey. Hey, Tom, I sure do. We have I'm about really a minute, by the way, Amy. No problem. I just wanted to let you know I grew up with a mother who was very progressive, and it's not just Fox News. She started listening to Coast to Coast Radio on AM, mm -hmm. and um, she started, I mean, it was cute when she thought chemtrails were a conspiracy theory, but it has evolved to, she's a full-blown QAnon or whatever. She believes in that child pornography ring. She uh, moved down to Ecuador and takes advantage of their social, uh, socialistic government down there, but hates it for America. Um, she believes that that movie, The Color of Water, was designed to indoctrinate our young children to sleep with reptilian people. I mean, it is just one thing after another. And the very latest thing she said is her man crush is Vladimir Putin, and he's a great leader, and all that he wants is for America to leave him the blank alone. Yeah. I mean, it is, she was full-blown. We grew up in church religious science. She's very progressive. She'd grow mushrooms in her house like a hippie. Mm -hmm. And she's just turned into this paranoid conspiracy theorist. And um, it's sad. And That's I don't amazing. know how to deprogram her. That's amazing. It's, I remember when Art Bell used to just be this kind of, you know, curmudgeonly uh, fascinating conspiracy guy. But, I, you know, I watched his show, well, after, in particular after he died when the new guy took over basically turn into a right-wing echo chamber um it's it's pretty astonishing i you know I, I met art bell back back in the day amy thank you for sharing that story with us it's remarkable don watching free speech tv in baldwin iowa hey don you've got a story of uh, right-wing indoctrination in your family yes i do i'm about your age and i have an older brother about five years older and when we were young and growing up i always looked up to him and he wasn't uh, essentially a pacifist, but he was, you know, pretty gentle and kind. And and recently, I had a conversation with him, and he, and he's a Fox News listener and Rush Limbaugh, and he said to me that he could solve the border crisis. He'd put landmines out, and I was just appalled. Wow! And I have a, a brother. That's what, that's what, that's what the East Germans did. I mean, that's that's. Amazing. Oh, I, I, yeah, those are the kinds of things I said to him. Like what kind of country would be be that would put landmines out and right. kill whoever steps on them? But uh, also, my brother-in-law is about five years younger than me. Uh, he's influenced a lot by Fox News, 
And we were just trying to have a simple conversation here about a couple months ago, and his attitude was people like, and I, I don't know if I can say Alex Jones, but uh, he's in agreement that that's a First Amendment right for him to say those kinds of things. And this was in the aftermath of the, the father who lost a child at Sandy Hook, mm-hmm. and he subsequently committed suicide. Well... Uh, needless to say, it's hard for me to talk to either of these two people uh, at this point in time because I, I know they're indoctrinated, and it just makes me feel really bad that people can change that much in a short period of time. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty extraordinary. Don, thank you for sharing your story. I'm I'm you know whew. these are some of these are really tragic. Leroy in Watertown, Wisconsin. Hey, Leroy, what's up? somewhat of a different spin. You asked the question, how has Fox influenced uh, a family member? And uh, it's not so much that it's influenced uh, a particular family member, but what it has done is it's drawn me closer to an older brother who I really didn't have a conversation with. He was not politically uh, uh, endowed, or how can I say it? Uh, He wasn't really paying attention. And now that uh, he uh, has come to realize just how... uh, the, uh, the, this has affected the country. Mm-hmm. He has. Uh, we talk now two, three hours sometimes at night. And so basically, what I'm trying to say is, uh, I've gone about the business, or I've gotten into the frame of mind now where he's open-minded and will listen to me when it, when I share. And he's not like I say, listen to your show. And Tom is just. I can't say how much it's really. A, there's only three of us left, and uh, mm-hmm. it's gratifying to know now that um, your show has uh, really made a profound effect on him because he listens and he sometimes calls and we share, you know, some of what we've heard. Oh, that's great, Leroy. So this is, instead of a bad Fox News story, this is a good progressive media story. Exactly, exactly. And I truly appreciate your time. Well, well, thank you, Leroy. And, and, and you know, I, I, I really hope that this show is not the left-wing version of Fox News, that, that we are actually talking about real facts and real news, things like that. Um, yeah. God bless you. And thank you, Leroy. Thanks a lot for the call. And that we're not tra- just trafficking in outrage, although there's plenty to be outraged about. But still, uh, you know, it's like we have to have a, you know, a healing and positive perspective. Or, I mean, why do it, right? Anyhow, Jeremy in Elmhurst, Illinois. Hey, Jeremy, you have a story about the right-wing cults? Right-wing cults and then just my own experience, uh, I think, deprogramming over the years. Um, I was born and raised uh, Catholic, conservative, my whole life, you know, uh, Catholic school the whole 12 years and all that. Um, So when 9-11 happened, you know, I was... Um, at that time, I was kind of a younger guy, you know, my early 20s, uh, driving pizzas around in the car a lot, lots of radio on, uh, listening to things like um, Sean Hannity at night, just kind of trying to seek news. And that was the loudest voice in Chicago. It's a the big radio station here. The conservative station is loud. It's, it's huge, um, a lot of bandwidth. So um, <clears throat> that was what I heard a lot, um, kind of reinforced the views that I had growing up. Uh, over time, you know, I was uh, working in restaurants and debating topics with people that uh, – I was working with and just uh, hearing different points of views and uh, having my own views challenged. And I think um, just open debate was what kind of got me seeking other voices, other ideas. Hmm. Um, I think what brought me around, too, was just um, comedy, things like um, uh, John Stewart's show, um, 
uh, things like Stephanie Miller on the radio, you know, something that would kind of break the ice, uh, kind of get me through to a different perspective. And um, yeah, and uh, and that's that's what it was. So just over time, listening to things like that, getting different perspectives and challenging my own views, turned me around. But I mean, it was easy to you know you hear the same thing over and over on the radio. Sean Hannity reinforcing your view, you know, the viewpoints you might have already had. Right. Um, you just get stuck in a bubble. So it, it takes something like um, like dialogue with a friend or or comedy or something just to break through that. Uh, to get you to see a different perspective, and that's what it took for me. So um, over the years, I've kind of changed, uh, kind of done a 180. You know, that's that's great. I'm 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 you you raised an issue that I've often wondered about. I remember back about a decade ago, I think it was. I was doing this show at the time. Um, Dennis Miller, actually it was more than a decade ago that Dennis Miller went from being a liberal comedian to being a conservative comedian. And uh, he was a regular on Bill O'Reilly's show and he started doing uh, gigs around the country where he'd do his conservative comedy. And it just fell flat. I mean, it just totally fell flat. And there, there was no market for it. There were a couple of attempts to, to do Dennis Miller and other conservative comedians in quotes specials on TV. And nobody found their stuff funny. I mean, it, it was it was all about outrage and and you know uh, jokes at the expense of people. You know, uh, anti-gay jokes and anti-black jokes and stuff like that. And 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 uh, people would just kind of roll their eyes. And I I wonder, Jeremy, uh, why it is that comedy that has a liberal edge to it uh, not only works but works really really well i mean it's become kind of the uh, you know with the exception of one of the late night shows which is more just kind of down the middle and you know let's talk about uh, you know family and food um you know all the rest of them basically are taking this kind of liberal um uh, approach to their comedy and uh, even when you had, and it's not just you know anti-president because you would you would expect you know the being kind of the the voice of the other side that you know when you have a Republican president they'd make jokes about Republicans when you have a Democratic president they'd make jokes about Democrats and certainly they made jokes about Obama but they weren't jokes that that had a knife to them you know the cut that that would change change opinions in a way that would cause people to become anti-Obama. And I, I've always wondered why that is. Why is it that liberal comedy works and conservative comedy doesn't? Any thoughts? Yeah, I think it has to do with the broad appeal that uh, the liberal comedians are using. You know, they're talking about things that uh, affect the lives of the everyman. You know, um, yeah, if you listen to uh, somebody who's uh, giving you know conservative jokes that that even exists anymore, um, they're just sort of targeted. They're kind of you know they're not so broad appeal. So. Yeah. Um, I think that's what it has to do. At least that's what it did for me. Is you know, these people are making jokes about things that I found funny because it, you know, it reflected the things that I was seeing in my own life. Sure. Um, I, I wonder to what extent that may reflect. I mean, uh, Mark Ames did some really brilliant reporting about libertarianism, and libertarianism was literally invented by a group called FEE, and I forget what the acronym stands for, but it was a lobbying organization for the real estate industry in the late 1950s. And this group funded a think tank, or they were their own think tank, they funded the development of this thing called libertarianism as a, as a vehicle to promote the interests of the real estate industry specifically, you know, as kind of the political voice of the real estate industry. And uh, to this day, I mean, the libertarianism is basically a con. It's, it's a giant con job on people. And, and increasingly, I'm becoming convinced that the entire modern conservative narrative is really just looking out for the interests of the billionaire class and big business and isn't a legitimate political movement. It's an economic movement. Um, you know, it is 
people looking out for their own economic self-interest and wrapping a political patina around it. And if that's the case, if the, if the conservative argument, if the conservative worldview is actually phony baloney, if it's, if it's just if it's a Potemkin village, if it's just a pretend reality, it's, it's, it's not real politically, it doesn't represent a legitimate political point of view, it has to use, constantly has to use deception and, and outrage in order to just hang on to an electorate, then that would make sense why comedy doesn't work, because comedy has to, at, at its core, have a kernel of truth. We don't laugh at things unless there's a kernel of truth in them. Uh, you think that makes sense? Makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Okay, Steve in St. Paul, Minnesota, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Steve, what's up? Good. Share my story about how I thought I was a Republican and then changed to a Democrat. Is I uh, I was in a band with my brother and my cousin, and they would when I'd have a cigarette break, they'd always talk about politics and stuff, and I didn't know anything about politics, and so. Uh, when I was delivering pizzas, I would turn on talk radio, and uh, I'd always hear, like, Jason Lewis and Sean Hannity, and I uh, can't think of the other guy that I used to listen to. But And then I would come back to band practice, and I would talk about what I heard, you know, which would mm-hmm. be, you know, people are they're using your tax money to, to give to people that don't want to work and that... Uh, and you know that would piss off anybody. I think <laughs> mm-hmm. if if you just know that people are they're just taking your money and giving it to somebody else that doesn't want to do it, that's going to piss anybody off. And and another thing too, I remember them talking about is that you know climate climate change isn't real because of uh, something about other planets or uh, temperatures are increasing too. But then so anyway, so you know I'm thinking to myself like, oh, that's kind of comforting to know this is all. This is all good stuff because, I, you know, when I'm in school, I'd hear about, you know, global warming or the uh, ozone layer depletion and stuff like that. And I'm like, hey, this, you know, this all sounds like good stuff, nothing to worry about anymore. And then I talk about it at band practice. And I'm like, whoa, what are you, you know, what are you listening to? And I told them, like, oh, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't listen to these guys. Those guys are, those guys are insane. And and then so my brother's like, well, are, are you, you know, what do you think? Are you, do you identify as like a Republican or a Democrat? And I'm like, well, my dad says that he's a Republican, so I suppose I'm probably a Republican. And he goes, well, let me ask you some questions. And he started breaking things down policy-wise. Do you think that, uh, if, you know, that we should help people that are poor so they don't have to be living in poverty? I'd say yes. He goes, do you think that we should take care of the environment and make sure that, we're, you know, not polluting and make policies based on, you know, protecting the environment. I'd say yes. Do you think that, uh, you know, if you're, you know, a billionaire, something that you should pay a decent fair share of your taxes so that we can live in a society to pay for things like, you know, good roads, public schools, and so on and so forth. And he'd break down these policies, and I'd go, yes, I agree with those. And he goes, well, then you you should be voting Democrat. And yeah. and then that's when, you know, and it was my brother that told me, so, I, you know, I trusted his judgment and and, uh, and everything. So, and so that's kind of how I came to be. And then now I'm just a huge Bernie Sanders fan, and all I want to do is tell people about it. <laughs> that's great. So you were pulled <laughs> back from the abyss by your brother and a, fellow, and a fellow band member. That's quite the story, Steve. How long ago was that? Oh, my gosh. Back, uh, I couldn't, I, probably 2000. So, so a decade or two ago. Yeah. Remarkable. Yeah. Steve, thanks for sharing your story with us. I appreciate it. And thanks for watching us on YouTube. 
Michael in Mayfield, Kentucky. Michael, you have a story? I do. I live in an area that seems to be kind of a proving ground for what the nation will be able to take in regards to this kind of, uh, well, political theater hate mm-hmm. type mongering. Right. And uh, I think one of the key things is everyone in media and stuff are seem to be missing, especially even in the DNC, the level of hopelessness that's been generated in areas like mine. As a consequence of uh, 40 years of Reaganomics? Is that what you're talking about? Well, exactly. And the opiate problem. Yeah. When you watch and you feel so hopeless and angry and such a failure, and you watch the liberal types talk about lofty goals, sharing, but you don't get a piece of that. Right. And then then you tune into into the right wing and they say, well, here's why. Here's who you should hate because of how bad things are for you. Right. And if you believe like I do, you're better than them. Right. And it empowers. And, well, I mean, it's much like you consider the beer hall push. Hitler was laughed at. He let it flee the country. Yep. After the economy fell, he was welcome as a savior. Yeah. And and he said, you know, it was the Jews and the Jewish bankers who were responsible for the problems of Germany. And and people were like, yeah, okay, we'll buy that. Amazing. Michael, thank you for the story uh, and, and the and the thoughts, the analysis. I think you're spot on. What happens when people are exposed to right wing media? Pat in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Pat, you've got a story for us. Hi, Tom. Yes. Uh, I uh, unfortunately have some expertise in the area of brainwashing and cults. Uh, as a result of losing my wife to a cult 16 years ago, she still believes, you know, their lies. And she's. Oh, was this a religious cult as opposed to a political and, uh, cult? One of the things that I, I wanted to uh, reference was if I could tie it in this Leslie Van Houten. Before I do that, uh, Leslie Van Houten of the Vanson family. Uh, before I do that, I'm thrilled and surprised to know that you're familiar with Ted Patrick and his work. His nickname is uh, Black Lightning. And that was that was getting to my point. A guy named Jim Siegelman, a different Jim Siegelman than you often reference, and Flo Conway wrote two wrote a book uh, with two different uh, editions, and it would have been the second edition, I believe. Uh, they interviewed Leslie Van Houten in prison. Leslie Van Houten was one of the women who was part of the Manson family. Yes. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, she's likely to get out of parole. And I don't think anyone, uh, anyone ever thought a Manson family member would get out. But she's, right. she's, her case is looking like she will get out. And and what happened? And and, and again, uh, you know, uh, the deprogramming process has has certainly evolved. Ted Patrick had to do a lot of different prison time or jail time for doing the deprogrammings that he did. Um, and and that's what I was going allude to allude to, is that it really doesn't fit in your wheelhouse, your style, because his style is very confrontational. Yeah. And what happened, with Le- what happened with Leslie Van Houten was there was a group session with the prison psychiatrist, and, the, and this is in the book Snapping by Siegelman and Flo Conway, where they interviewed her in prison. And, you know, quite a long time ago. But mm-hmm. in any event, uh, the prison psychologist 
psychiatrist asked Leslie Van Houten a question, and she provided the answer, and I'll try to cut to the chase because I know I don't have all day, but um, she provided an answer, and she provided a cult, instinctive answer. And what it is, and it relates to your question about the comedy and so forth, mm-hmm. Robert J. Lifton, who's still alive, will, when he dies, he'll probably be the most renowned psychologist of all time. Uh, he's in New York City at NYU. And one of the tenets that he identified was a demand for purity. That's mm. a tenet of cult, of being brainwashed is a demand for purity. So conservatives don't see the John Stewart show. They don't see these shows because there's a demand for purity and there's there's the induction of phobias and things that normal people can't can't conceive are possible, but there's hell to pay if you do anything that's impure. There's a total demand for purity as cult membership. And so it wasn't this prison psychiatrist that uh, awoke Leslie Van Houten. It was after she got back to her cell and her cellmate was irate. Her cellmate was like almost physically imposing on her and demanding a real answer. And according, if she was maybe even not physically threatened, but she was obviously in a confined space, but her, her cellmate was not giving up. Like, I'm not accepting what you said. You have to give me a real answer. And Leslie Van Houten recounted that it felt like someone turned her brain back on. Wow. Wow. That was the, that was the moment that she was deprogrammed. That's a, that's a remarkable story, Pat. Thanks. Thanks very much for calling and sharing it with us. Don in Brookings, Oregon. Hey, Don, you're, you're on the air. Hi, Tom. It hurts between my ears. I don't know how you do it every day. So I I wanted to mention uh, the problem with Republican humor is that uh, humor is based in the right brain where the spirit lives, the soul lives. And uh, Republicans are stuck in the left brain with the ego, i.e. the devil. And uh, um, Jill Bolte-Taylor explains it uh, nicely in her TED Talk. There's something different between us and them, when they say the rich aren't like us, what they mean is they have broken wiring to their right brain, to their soul. Mm. Quite literally, the extreme among them are literally half-wits. Yeah, uh, to, yeah, to literally use the word. Excellent points, Don. Thank you. Rachel in Lincoln, Nebraska. If you can convince the poorest white guy that he has more in common with the richest white guy, um, and he can look down on all black people, then that's what he's going to want instead of listening to what will actually help him. And that's what Fox News does. It's Fox News demonizes. And when they finally start watching the comedy and the comedy resonates with them because it's white people mostly talking about issues that affect all white people, sometimes that just kicks their brains back on. Yeah, that's an interesting analysis. Rachel, I think that the whole comedy thing, it has to have a basis of truth. I mean, this is the core of comedy. And frankly, I think the conservative worldview, by and large, or at least what we call the conservative worldview these days, does not have a basis of truth to it. So there's not a basis for comedy. But anyhow, Rachel, thank you very much for the call. And thank you all for calling and contributing to the show today. Your thoughts, your your experiences, it's remarkable uh, stories that I've been hearing. And thank you so much. We'll be back. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Ain't enough to just sit around and complain or yell at the TV. Uh, You could start out by telling your friends about progressive media, including our program, and help bring them into the fold. 
In the meantime, get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 